Well, I feel a tremendous privilege to be able to share God's Word with you this morning. But I also feel incredibly uncomfortable because of the theme that I have this morning. So instead of explaining to you what it is right off the bat, why don't you turn with me to Romans chapter 1 and we can be uncomfortable together. I'm going to start in verse 18 and I'm going to read until chapter 2 verse 11. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. For they, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and birds, and animals, and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another. Men committing shameful acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, impenitent heart, you are storing up for yourself wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. See, the theme or the topic of wrath or judgment or God's fierce anger for sin and the sinner, it makes me squirm. It makes me uncomfortable. I don't like it. It it makes me wish that this wasn't in Scripture, that this wasn't a theme at all, that maybe we could just say, well, God is all about love and, and this sin will just kind of be wiped away and you won't need to worry about the fact that there's actually wrath. And the reason I feel that way is because God's wrath didn't change me. 
the feeling of God's anger toward me didn't actually change me. What changed me is when I felt Jesus come to me and say, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. What changed me is when I felt the Father speak over me and say, you are my beloved son. I'm proud of you. What changed me was when I experienced God's kindness and love to me, not his wrath. When I was in Bible college, I was taking a course on discipleship counseling, and my professor was giving a short lecture on motivations of the heart in connection with the gospel. And what he said I had heard before many times, but it resonated deeply with me this time. He said, If your motivation for obedience and for change comes from heart toward God's pleasure, as if I'm going to do enough, I'm going to obey enough, and then I'll receive God's love. I'm going to do enough or obey enough and receive God's pleasure. And because of my doing, I'm going to get God to be pleased with me. Then then I can experience his love. When your heart motivation is toward He said, you'll never, ever be able to actually change. This may lead for a little bit of change for a certain amount of time, but it's not actually going to change your life completely where you'll find power over sin. He said, the only way for you to experience real change and sustainable change is when you realize he loves you now. And so you're like, oh, I have experienced so much love and so much kindness from God. I don't want to displease him. He has given me so much grace, so much love. How could I disobey and dishonor this God who has loved me so much? And because you experience God's deep love, his patience, his kindness for you, your motivation is out of already being loved, already being accepted. And so I squirm when I see that God has wrath, God has anger. On July 8th, 1741, Jonathan Edwards preached probably what is considered the most famous sermon ever preached, titled, titled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And I read some of it, and I didn't like it. Is that okay to say? (laughs) He's probably the greatest evangelist, preaching one of the the most impactful sermons, and I didn't like the sermon. As one commentator said, there was nothing of a God of love in this sermon. You walked away from this sermon not feeling God's mercy, not his kindness, not his goodness, not his love, not at all. But what Jonathan Edwards did was he woke people up. Because you left his sermon feeling the weight of your sin. You left Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of the Angry God, feeling how absolutely detestable, how disgusting your sin is in light of God's holiness. That you are an absolute wretch before a holy God in your sin. And people woke up to that. And as clergymen as preachers saw the effects of sinners in the hands of an angry God, the effects of that sermon, they adopted that style of preaching. And we've all heard a sermon like it. They're called hellfire and brimstone messages. Because to a certain extent, it changes us. 
when we realize our wretchedness before God. How detestable our sin actually is before the Lord. This led to what? This style of preaching as it spread out, as more and more people began preaching sinners in the hands of an angry God like sermons. This led to the first great awakening. But here's, here's the problem I face, is I've heard Hellfire and Brimstone messages. We all have, right? And never once did I hear one that changed me. Never once did I hear one that actually affected my life to sustainable change. Because I would leave a Hellfire and Brimstone message, and I would walk away in fear and not faith. And so what would happen was I would pray, God, have mercy on me. I, I know I'm a wretch. I know I'm a sinner. I know. And I'd do devotions, and then the fear would kind of, you know, dwindle away. And then I'd have to wait till somebody else preached, you know, on hellfire and brimstone again. But here's, here's the thing. Jonathan Edwards isn't wrong. It may make me uncomfortable, it may make me squirm, but Jonathan Edwards was not wrong when he preached this. We are absolutely wretched. There is a cup filled with God's wrath that is one day going to be poured out on the sinner. It's, it, there is examples of it in the Old Testament. It's prophesied of throughout the prophets. We're warned about it through t- the teachings of Jesus. It's expounded on by Paul, and it meets its fulfillment in Revelation. There is a day coming where a cup filled with God's wrath is going to be poured out on the sinner. But because the model of preaching God's wrath, the focus was on scaring you into Christianity by giving you so much fear that you'll turn, the church has been burned out on it. And so instead of having a proper context of his wrath, we, many in the modern church are just letting go of it completely. Well, just God doesn't have any wrath. Let's not look at that and let's just focus on his love, kindness, and mercy. The modern, predest- uh, the modern Presbyterian church recently updated their hymnal. And they requested the, uh, the writers of the hymnal who owned the copyright that they could change the lyrics of the song In Christ Alone. Because in that song... One of part of the lyrics, it says, and on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And what the Presbyterian church requested is that they could change the lyrics to and on the cross, as Jesus died, the the love of God was magnified. But here is what they are missing. It is because of God's wrath that his love is magnified. It is because you have a proper understanding of God's fierce anger over sin, his wrath over wickedness and injustice and unholiness, unrighteousness, that when you see what Christ actually did for you, the cup he drank, the love is magnified. When you remove his wrath completely, when you remove his justice, what you are simultaneously doing is removing his love. You are making his love lesser. 
having a proper understanding of God's wrath does not diminish his love. It amplifies. It accentuates. It highlights his love. And what the church, the modern emergent church is doing is by taking away his love, he's, they are making the price Christ paid on the cross lesser. You are making it seem that Christ didn't love you as much as he did. You are diminishing, diminishing what Christ actually suffered for you. See, if you do not have the ability to hate, you don't have the ability to love. You don't. How can I give you an example of this? Well, do you love the Jewish people? If you love the Jewish people, you must hate the Holocaust. If you love diversity and people of every race, then you must hate racism. You must hate lynchings. You must must hate discrimination. If you love life, if you love children, if you love growth, then you must hate abortion. If, if you do not hate the Holocaust or murder or abortion, then you are failing to love. Part of our, part of our uh, hope is actually in the idea that there is a day of judgment coming. Hitler will not get away for all the Jews he killed. There will be an answer given for every baby murdered in the, in the womb. Every act of in, unrighteousness, those that were kidnapped, there's a day coming that people, those people will have to give an account. And it is not because God is a mean God. It is because he loves us. He cares about justice. See, sometimes we view God as, as like he's 50% love, 50% justice, and they're kind of duking it out between each other, which one's going to win today. But no, he's 100% love. He's 100% justice. That culminates in who he is. And so rather than them being in opposition to each other, they work together because you cannot be loving if you are not simultaneously just. You cannot be just if you are not simultaneously loving. In the book of Revelation, those that were killed for, for uh, not taking the mark of the beast, those that were martyred, it says they cry out to the Lord, how long until you judge the inhabitants of the earth? How long is this going to continue? This injustice, this wickedness. You see, to a certain extent, this is our cry too. Jesus, how long until you return and set this world right? Can you imagine with me for a moment, you sitting where you are and realizing that Christ reigns over the whole earth, that there is not one murder happening right now, there is not one rape happening now, there is no evil happening on this earth whatsoever. But the reason why we have that hope is because there is a day of wrath that is being prepared right now. That is yet to be fulfilled. A cup of God's wrath that is going to be poured out on those that have been given over to sin. So, in what I just read, it's, it's easy to say, okay, yes, I'll agree that 
a day of wrath is coming for Hitler. I'll agree that a day of wrath is coming for the rapist or those that just kidnap those people in Haiti. I'll agree that for those those terrible sinners, you might even say that chapter 1, the, where it talks about the, the, the ones full of covetousness and malice and strife and deceit and slanderers and haters of God, that maybe you'll even say, yes, those people deserve God's wrath. Those people deserve God's judgment. Well, Paul knew you were going to say that. And so in chapter 2, he comes and says, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. You, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself. Because you may not have murdered, but you hated. You may not have committed adultery, but you lusted. What Paul has just done is he just said, chapter one is you. You did these things. You're the one who guilty. You're the one who's guilty. Do you judge Hitler when you have done the same things in your heart? When you are the one that is guilty, that you are actually somebody who is guilty and requires the wrath of God to fall on you? And so you say this. Yeah, but John, God's loving. God's kind. He's patient. You're right. I agree. That is what changed my life, his patience, his kindness. And Paul knew you were going to say that. And so he says, Are you, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. If you experience God's kindness and patience and don't know what he is being kind to you for, then it's going to lose its power. But when you have a context, an understanding that, whoa, wait a minute, I am deserving of God's wrath. I am deserving of God's fierce anger for my sin. Suddenly, his kindness means something to you. Suddenly, his patience means something to you. The fact that you have been living in so much sin and evil and wickedness that your heart has not been holy, it has not been completely righteous, his patience suddenly means something to you now. And when you grasp God's wrath and then you grasp his kindness and you put them together, it bears the fruit of repentance. This is the problem in the modern emergent church is that they have removed God's wrath and in doing so, his kindness is diminished. His patience is diminished. The cross is diminished. And it's just all about love. Paul goes on to say, he talks about that the Jews then are, have the oracles of God, they have the law of God, and they're like, you know, well, we're the Jews. You know, we have the law of God and we can obey, and therefore we're righteous because we're, we're, we have the law, right? And so in chapter 3, he says, what then? Are we, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. 
For we have already already charged that all, both Jew and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of the peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. How many have done righteous? Nobody. That includes you. No one has sought God. Your heart of sin had did not have the capacity to seek God on its own. How many have turned aside? Everybody. And Paul once again said, you who believe that by obeying the law that somehow you have attained your own salvation or somehow you have been made righteous because you have obeyed this? No. All have turned aside. You know the one person who loves the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their mind, with all their body, with all their soul, with all their strength? The one person who did it? It was Jesus. You never did it. What Paul has just done is he has exposed every single one of us. You and I. Because you and I have sinned We have been lumped into chapter 1. You and I are guilty. Paul Washer was once preaching to a bunch of agnostics and atheists, uh, college students. And before he went on stage, he was praying, like, what do I even say to these these people? And so he he walks out there and a thought hit him and he said to these college students, I am about to tell you the most terrifying thing that I could ever say. You are about to hear the most frightening, the most scary, the most terrifying thing in all the universe. And so everybody leaned in, like, what's he going to say? And he said this, God is good. And they kind of snickered. And one of the students was like, what's wrong with that? And Paul, and Paul Washer, he said, what would a good God do with somebody like you? You who are steeped in sin, in wickedness, in unholiness, in unrighteousness, if God is a good, loving, righteous, holy God, how is he going to deal with somebody like you? If God is perfectly holy, it would be unjust for you not to receive his wrath. And so we have this book and it's filled with the wrath of God for the sinner. Warnings over and over. Listen to Nahum 1, 2 to 3. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. This is what you're under as a sinner. Wrath, anger, judgment. There's anger for sin and for your unrighteousness. And then he says this, the Lord is slow to anger 
and great in power. You see, under the context of his wrath, you realize he's actually slow to get angry at you for your sin. That is powerful. That is what effectuates change. Not being feel, feeling like we're being dangled over, the hell, over hellfire, but it's love in context of his wrath. The Lord has fierce anger and wrath, and each one of us is under it. Zephaniah was a prophet during Josiah's day, and his primary role was to give prophecies over the day of the Lord. It's filled with the Lord's wrath over his justice, over his anger. And it says this, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble of the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal. And the name of the Lord of the idolatrous, and the name of the idolatrous priests um, along the priests, along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs, to the hosts of heaven, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear to Milcom. Those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire Him. This is what you're under. This is your destiny. I will cut off mankind. And it is only the love of the Lord that He has not already done so. Your destiny is in Zephaniah. Your destiny is in Nahum 1. This is what you're under. Do you feel the weight of it? This used to be teaching that was normal food for the church. Understanding that God hates sin. He does not tolerate it. But in light of that, how merciful, how kind is he that you haven't been cut off yet? Can you imagine if I would have read Zephaniah to you and closed my Bible and sat down the weight that you guys would be under? You're about to be cut off with the fierce anger of the Lord. And that's the end of my sermon. Praise God that it's not at the end of my sermon. But the reason why it's not is because the Bible didn't end with the book of Zephaniah. The story was not finished. It isn't over with, I will cut off mankind, even though that would have been just for the Lord to do. David Martin Lloyd-Jones It tells a story, an example of the need to understand God's wrath and his judgment. And he said, he says, imagine one day you're walking down the street and somebody comes up to you and he says, oh, hey, by the way, I was just at your place and I paid a debt of yours. What would be the proper response? Well, the only 
the only way to have an appropriate response to that is by understanding what the debt was. In other words, if he paid a $20 parking ticket, you would say, oh, thank you very much. I appreciate that. But if he paid a debt of 10 years back taxes and the IRS is after you, you would fall on the ground before him and say, thank you. How could I ever repay you? But the church, by forgetting the price that Christ paid, the cup that Christ drank, by forgetting that, we have, become, we have turned the cross into a $20 parking ticket. Thanks, Jesus. I appreciate that. I appreciate that you've given me eternal life. That's nice. But if Christ never would have died for you, if he never would have come for you, Zephaniah is your destiny. The cup of the Lord's wrath is your destiny. So what did Christ exactly drink? What did Jesus exactly drink for you? Then Jesus went with them to a place called the Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father... If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Many scholars, many preachers have pointed to this text and said, it doesn't make sense that Jesus is just afraid of physical suffering or torture. Many Christians throughout history have faced death, have faced suffering with joy, with singing. Why? Because they had the life of Christ in them. They had a joy set before them because they knew the reward. No. What Jesus is facing in this moment is he's beginning to taste the cup that you were supposed to drink. And that cup is separation, abandonment. That cup is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, who had continual fellowship with the Father all of his days, whatever he saw the Father doing, he did. When he was ministering and he got exhausted, he would go into the mountain to pray, to be with his Father, to be rejuvenated with him. And in this moment, He's beginning to realize for the first time in his life, by pain, by being the substitute for your sin, this is going to require being cut off from his father for the first time. This is the agony that Christ is enduring in this moment. Michael, this is your cup. It's the cup of God's wrath. It is filled with complete 
And I want you to know when you drink this, you're going to be utterly and completely cut off from the Lord. This isn't just going to require physical torment and suffering. This is going to, for the first time in your life, you're going to be abandoned. You're going to be cut off from the Lord. This is going to be, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Are you able to drink it? Are you able to drink the cup of complete abandonment, the wrath of God over you? You can't, can you? You can't bear it. You see what Jesus is suffering in this moment is that he was cut off so that you would never be. Jesus was abandoned so that you would never experience abandonment. Jesus not only suffered God's wrath, his fierce anger for your sin, Jesus was cut off from his Father. Because he was abandoned, you will never be abandoned. Because he was cut off, you will never be cut off. Because he was rejected, you will never be rejected. You know what doctrine this is called? Penal substitution. You deserved a penalty. You deserved the cup of his wrath. You deserved to be cut off. And Jesus came to you and he said, I'll be your substitute. When you understand what Christ paid for you in the context of God's wrath, do you see the value of Christ more? But because the church has forgotten the cup, we have forgotten Christ's love. We have forgotten his love. Michael, you can't bear the cup. So I'm willing to make an exchange. I will take the cup of God's wrath if you would take my cup. This is the cup of my blood that is spilled for many. Do this in remembrance of me. An exchange has to be made. You give up the cup of God's wrath and you take the cup of his blood. You know, for the first 1,500 years of the church, the Lord's Supper, the cup of his blood was not viewed as just this symbolic thing. It was viewed as if his presence was actually coming down and you were being unified with Christ. And when you took his cup, this is the sacredness of it. You are acknowledging that I couldn't drink God's wrath. I couldn't bear this separation. I couldn't bear this abandonment. And then 500 years ago, suddenly it it became this idea that it's just symbolic. I better not preach on communion, otherwise I won't be asked to preach again. But here's the thing. When you make the exchange, you say... I can't take this wrath. And Christ gives you his blood. He's giving you his righteousness. Not only is he taking the guilt, the, the being your substitute for the penalty, he's giving you his body, which was the only righteous one. 
He was the only one who ever lived a righteous life. Timothy Keller, when preaching on the, the passage, John 1, 2, it says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you do not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he said that growing up, he used to hear this passage, and it actually wouldn't encourage him. Because he would think about it as in a court of law, like Jesus is his lawyer. And so when the, the accusations come against you, Jesus is like, okay, but I have this evidence here. And, you know, I'm going to try to convince the judge. I'm going to be your advocate in convincing the judge that, you know, this, this person should be let off the hook. And so it actually wasn't encouraging to him because it felt like, well, what if the judge just makes a different decision? And Timothy realized that because God is just, when Jesus comes to the Father as your advocate, he says, it would be unjust for you to punish this person because I already paid it. It would be unjust of God, you who have faith in Jesus, to pour his wrath down on you. And that filled Timothy Keller with hope. That Jesus, as your advocate, he's not saying, you know, but there's this evidence and that evidence, so I think that we should. He's saying, no, the price was already paid. You cannot pour his wrath down on this person because I paid every bit of it. To pour his wrath down on you who believe, who have taken the cup of the Lord, the justice of God proves his love. Don't forget the cup of God's wrath that was taken for you. There's a song written by Jeannie Hussey. It was published in 1921. It's called Lead Me to Calvary. And in that song, there's a line that says, Lest I forget Gethsemane, lest I forget thine agony, lest I forget thy love for me. Lead me to Calvary. When you forget Gethsemane, when you forget the agony Christ went through to give you his blood, to pay the penalty, to be in your substitute, you're forgetting his love. And because the church has forgotten the cup of God's wrath that Christ drank for you, they have diminished his love. You see how Christ loved you to suffer for you in this way? Just for you, separation of it from his Father. Just for you. When Jesus went into the temple, he opened to the book of Isaiah, chapter 62. And he read this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Do you know how that verse ends? In the day of vengeance of our God. But Jesus didn't read that part. Because the good news is that you can be saved from his vengeance. The day of vengeance from our God is not yet, but it is coming.
It's coming. And right now, you're living in a time where Christ is saying, let's make an exchange. I'll take that vengeance. I'll take that wrath if you'll take my blood. Let's go back to Romans. But now, I'm in chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Has the law condemned you? The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He passed over your former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. All your sins that you committed Yesterday, the day before, the ones that are condemning you right now, the ones that require God's wrath to fall upon you, through Christ, He has passed over them to redeem you. You can find that hope, that salvation, and it is based not by overlooking God's wrath, Not by forgetting his cup that he drank for you. It's by understanding the cup that Christ drank for you. Maybe we we all could just open our hands right now. And I want you to picture a cup sitting in your hand. Now you know in your heart what cup you're holding. Is it the cup of God's wrath? Is it the cup of his blood? If this morning your heart is condemning you, if this morning your heart is saying, I, I'm scared, I feel God's wrath against me, I want to invite you to make an exchange. Make the exchange of faith in Jesus Christ and take his blood upon you. Drink his blood. In, in the book Counterfeit Gods, Timothy Keller writes this. God saw Abraham's sacrifice and said, Now I know that you love me because you did not withhold your only son from me. But how much more can we look at his sacrifice on the cross and say to God, Now that now we know that you love us for you did not withhold your son, your only son who you, whom you love from us. In closing, I want to read Isaiah 53. 
Isaiah 53 to you. Because this was the cup of God's wrath. This was the cup Christ drank for you. Maybe we can just meditate on this. That you were saved from this because of Christ's love for you. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He who had no former majesty that we should look on him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men should hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And his and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that it, before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was put, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many. And makes intercession for the transgressors. Do not forget the cup Christ drank for you. Because it is in the cup of God's wrath that his love is revealed.